Hi there, welcome to episode 12 of Sparks of Madness, um, and this week my guest is, well there isn't a guest, it's just me, um, that's partly because I um, completely buggered up the booking process to get another guest, and then because I didn't want to have a week without any episodes going out, I thought what I would do is um, just present something by myself and see how that goes, so if um you are already sick of the sound of my voice this episode's probably not for you but what i thought i'd do is just have a bit of a chat around the issues that i would normally discuss with my guests but from my own perspective and then um i have asked some uh, friends and followers on social media to to fire over some questions some of those have been sent in in text format so i'll just read them out and then some of those also we've got some audio recording to those questions as well i uh, i made the mistake of uh asking uh, or saying ask me anything um so some of those questions might not necessarily serve the mental health part of the pod and i can't promise they'll serve the the uh, comedy part of the podcast but um i did say ask me anything so i am going to answer those questions as puerile base and vulgar as some of those might be um now at this start part of the uh, episode normally i would have introduced my guest and then normally would kick off with a bit of a softball question a nice opener of uh, you know how you're finding lockdown or something like that so i speak to you it is the 3rd of august um 2020 at the point of recording and how am i finding lockdown um, although is it really a lockdown or not that's a debate for another day but i've been working from home since mid-march um, with occasional brief trips into the office for my day job um and haven't had a, a gig since um the 13th of march um apart from a couple of online gigs i find the online comedy world tricky um in that i tend to bounce off of a live audience like most comedians do some people have done some fantastic work online during the the pandemic um but i have found it quite hard to to, to uh kind of find a, a space where i'm gonna be at my best shall we say so i have only done a couple of things i did a a gig for a friend's wife's birthday party um betty b um celebrated her birthday relatively early in lockdown um and uh i was actually offered a fee by my friend dave who's a friend old friend from uni how much would it cost for you to do a birthday party and i uh i actually refused to take a fee because i thought it might be shit um so i said tell you what why don't you just make a donation to the nhs uh, masks appeal um that was in the news at the time because james mcavoy had donated a massive amount of money um uh, but we did it i did it a couple of friends came on who've also been on this podcast so johnny brock and keith wilde also came on and we had a good time i think uh, but it's really weird looking at a screen seeing some silent faces because you've got them all on mute on zoom um so looking like they're laughing back at you or also looking like possibly they've stubbed their toe or they're screaming in pain and wish you'd shut the fuck up so um that was a weird one um i 
done a couple of bits of sending clips off for other people or or whatever what have you uh, of pre-recorded stuff or stuff that i performed as live or live elsewhere um i organized a couple of online fundraisers for um some people i've gigged for before which was a mixture of sort of specially recorded stuff and archive footage from various acts and then um just a few weeks back i actually hosted a night i emceed a night for uh, the bradford fringe festival which is probably the most positive experience i've had during um this sort of weird comedy lockdown period um so i hosted a night with loads of really good comedians which was headlined by barbara nice um and uh, we had a, it was a really pleasant night actually i'm glad i did it um I, I was sort of in two minds about whether to do it or not but I wanted to uh, to have a look at it and, and give it a go. So that's sort of how I found lockdown, really. Comedy's been a bit weird. Um, I'm itching to get out and perform again live in the flesh. We were all hoping that this month, August, would see things start up again. There are outdoor gigs cropping up all over the place, but comedy proper, if you want to call it that, um, looks like it's been given another slight delay. I'm hoping that I'll get gigging uh, with things that I run um, you know, around bank holiday weekend, moving into September locally in West Yorkshire, but who knows? We'll see. Um, in terms of how I got started in comedy then, which would normally be the next question I'd ask, um, how did I get started in comedy? Well, I have always been someone who, when I've been out on the beer with my mates or even at school, would, would be joking around all the time, find it hard in a group situation to to take life completely seriously always feel like i've got a gag or a quip that springs to mind and quite often that would be how i would maybe get the attention that i was craving um so i've always thought that i could be a funny person and some people have always said i should have a go um uh but i was always too scared to so i uh i didn't have a go until um 2018 so it's coming up two years but obviously we've had a long period of lockdown so I, I was gigging for coming up for 18 months before everything shut down um and the way i did it was i started on a comedy course now in the industry some some seasoned pros will look down their noses at comedy courses as being um a problem within the industry because it means that potentially the industry is oversaturated with acts at a certain level or people say you can't teach funny um and all of that so i have some sympathy with those views but if i hadn't had the safety net of um doing a course which was run by a, a seasoned pro who knew what he was talking about which is another person who's been on this podcast before james bays um, if i hadn't had the safety net of that and the comfort that that gave and the grounding that that gave then i don't think i'd have stepped on stage and and had a go um some people and more power to them just get on stage at an open mic night having no real necessary expectation other than what they've seen of what's going to happen um jim james um gave us as his sort of um, students if you like a really good grounding in what it's like to be on stage what's expected what's good what's bad what's ugly um what he didn't do was teach you how to be funny he taught you how not to be unfunny by stripping away the stuff that you maybe were saying which wasn't particularly funny but he can't no one can say to someone right do this and you will be funny what really anybody who knows what they're talking about can do is say 
don't do this, you'll ruin it. And that was kind of the grounding that that uh, that I had from from Jim. Um, and I'll be forever grateful for that. And and the experience was meant to be potentially a one-off. Um, it was we did it for charity, and I I lost my mum to cancer um, around twelve years ago, and um, twelve and a half years ago coming up. And I had done some fundraising while she had cancer and after she died, in the form of uh, running, which for a fat lad like me is not easy. Uh, did several ten um, k races, um, and then eventually built up. I did the Great North Run. Um, a couple of years ago, um, it was actually I think coming up four years ago, and then um, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, did the uh, the London Marathon um, to raise funds. I raised quite a bit of money over the years, and people got a bit sick, I think, of seeing that you know I'm I'm going to go out running. Please give me money for sponsorship. So I wanted to find something different to do. Plus, the marathon uh, really knackered my feet. I had to have months of physio. Um, so. I was looking for something to do. Um, I saw someone post online saying that they uh, they had just done their first uh, comedy gig, and it was someone I, I followed on Twitter and asked them how they did it, and they said they'd done a course, and so th- the rest is history, really. Um, and since then, I've loved it. It was meant to be a one-off, unless I was really good at it. I got told by people whose opinions I trusted and who I didn't think would be blowing smoke up my ass that I was pretty good um, straight off the bat, and so. Um, that feedback combined with the exhilaration of having gone out and and felt the laughter wash over me um, meant that I'd found something new that, that I felt like I could succeed at and do well at and I'd never really had that in any kind of creative or professional setting before um, you know, I'm immensely proud of my my family life, but other than that, since I left university in the in 2001, um, I've kind of moved from job to job, and I've done all right. I'm you know I'm okay, but it's not it's nothing vocational. It's nothing that's a calling. Um, it's it's a job. Um, whereas I don't see comedy as a job. Perhaps I should, um, but uh, I see it as as so much more than that. And I, I've loved every minute of it. And my intention, my aim, will be that if all things go well, that eventually I might be able to call it my job. But at the moment, it feels like I'm a bit of a fraud to do that. So, which I suppose leads me on to my mental health. And I'm not going to prattle on for too long because I know it's just one person talking to themselves at the moment. So, um, but at this point, I would probably ask one of my guests about how comedy and their mental health coexist. Um, so it's 10 years this month um, since I had kind of my big mental health crisis, I suppose. Um, I um, had been feeling unhappy for a wee while. Um, I had just secured a move of job from one employer to another with a, a really big pay rise and, and you know, chance of real progression etc and still felt really unhappy really empty um with at home i'd got a, a three-year-old and, a, and my son was coming up to one year old uh three and a half year old my son was coming up to one year old um and and they're fant- amazing kids and yet i still felt empty um and, and unhappy and, and really kind of devoid of joy if you like um and so i i reached the conclusion fuck with that I am that it must be my marriage that was a problem and so I left my wife um I left her for almost a month um out of the blue 
she did not see it coming. She knew I wasn't quite right, but she didn't see that coming. And why would she? Uh, because I made the decision almost overnight. Um, and so um, that was a really, obviously a really horrible time. Um, my wife at that point was saying, you're not well, you, this isn't you. you. You're not well mentally. Um, you know, you need to... Um, need to get some help and this was while I'd basically upped and left her with two young kids a mortgage etc and just and just disappeared really and and I, I I rang my daughter every day who was three three and a half at the time to say good night and ask her how she was but she didn't understand what was going on clearly my son was was 10 months old he didn't have a clue um and and my wife was fantastic during that period and, and I'll be forever grateful to her for um recognizing that I wasn't just being a dickhead. I was I was being an ill dickhead, um, and for taking me back, um, because that's what eventually happened. We, after about two and a half weeks apart, I suddenly some sort of mists cleared, and I realised that that leaving wasn't the answer, and and my wife wasn't the problem, and my marriage wasn't the problem. Um, it was something else, and so we sort of rather than just coming straight home we we kind of negotiated and spoke and worked it through and talked it through and um with a few conditions understandably i came home uh, those conditions were that i would go and get some help medically and that we as a couple would go and get some some couples therapy counseling whatever you want to call it um and we did both of those things and it did do the did do a lot of good but it didn't do um, as much good as perhaps I had hoped it would do. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, depression and anxiety. Um, thankfully, never got to the stage where I considered harming myself or anyone else. Um, but um, I, there were some very harmful behaviours, particularly during that month away. I was spending money like it was going out of fashion. I was drinking heavily. I was behaving quite irrationally. In my um, sort of orienteering orientation day, um, at my brand new job that I'd started because I left my wife on the weekend before starting the new job. Um, I was in with the second most senior person in the company that I was joining and I was falling asleep in the induction session because um, one of the side effects of the kind of depression I was having was that in those stressful situations, you almost become narcoleptic, really. I was nodding off, which must have looked very odd to them, and somehow I managed to keep the job. I'd, I'd, if it had been the other way around, I might have just bounced me out on the first day, and then I'd have been really screwed. Anyway, um, I'm waffling a bit now. So, yeah, we we went to couples therapy. I went to the GP. I got uh, diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Um and um, was prescribed um, citalopram, which is one of the more common sort of entry-level antidepressants. Um, and I was also referred for um, CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, which is a talking therapy. Um, and that involved me going and sitting in a room with a guy called Richard. Every week I'd fill in a questionnaire about you know on a scale of one to ten how likely are you to kill yourself how hungry have you been how much have you been sleeping all those kind of things because the easiest way to measure someone's happiness is through uh, almost a an algorithm that's completed by pen and paper um, you may sense my cynicism here a little bit um and we would sit and talk and, and what i had expected perhaps naively was that when you get referred for therapy because your brain's fucked um it would be a bit um, 
Hollywood cliche. There might be a couch. You might be lying down and talking about the root causes of your issues. Um, you know, maybe I would talk about my mother or my father or, or those kinds of things. And then perhaps talking it through would be one of the keys to fixing myself. And that wasn't what I got. And, and I'm a big fan of the NHS, but I do think that the mental health um, process from what I understand, it hasn't really improved in the last 10 years from when I was in the system. Over the Overworked, overstretched, under-resourced and potentially under-equipped in terms of sort of um, real modern thinking about these things. But um, what you get is you get uh, the cognitive behavioural side of things is when you're feeling like this, what are you going to do about it? Um, which is tricky. Um, so, you know, when you're feeling like this what are you can do about it you can sit in a room with uh, your your therapist and say well i will go and get some exercise or i will i will speak to my wife or i will get fresh air or i will listen to some music or whatever but the reality is that the very nature of the issues you have make that sometimes unlikely for people to self-manage straight off the bat and you're going to have blips and setbacks and that certainly happened a few times over the years the one thing that actually has helped um regularly has been exercise and i am a, a fat prick and so it's tricky but if i can get out and run with just by myself with music i generally feel a lot better afterwards uh, mentally not necessarily physically normally blowing out of my ass after a couple of minutes but um mentally i find that that can clear a lot of the the darkness away um, and be helpful um, to my shame I've barely done it and since I've started comedy um, which brings me about full circle comedy is something that um, I would guess that um, if I had said to my CBT um, counsellor I'm going to start stand-up comedy that's how I'm going to deal with this issue he would have possibly um, prescribed me some more medication and maybe sectioned me because everything about it is counterintuitive for in my opinion for someone who has depression anxiety and and potentially those other conditions we've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast um because um i get sometimes socially anxious uh, as much as people who know me might find that difficult to believe um worried about saying the wrong thing worried about acceptance worried about feeling valid feeling like you belong worried about what people think of you and yet the thing that i now do which seems to have helped me in a lot of ways is go on stage and say things that i have prepared to say that are largely either all my opinions or actual events from my life and lay myself bare to people um seeking their validation and acceptance and asking them to say yeah graham it's when you talk about um you know your sex life or when you talk about your kids or when you talk about um you're arguing with with racists on twitter or any of those things we we find that funny and we we admire you and we validate you and that's really weird to do i think because and thankfully, I've I've really not had those awful gigs that you you know that all comedians dread, where nothing lands, where it's tumbleweed, where you've died on your ass, uh, you know, death of a thousand cuts kind of gig, 
I touch wood, I still haven't had that kind of gig. But leaving yourself open to that every time is tricky um, and potentially stupid. Um, yeah, I've done it. And, and as well as that, what I realized when I was thinking about this, this having this conversation with myself for this episode is I've not done it necessarily in, in a typical way either. So started out with the, with the show, the, the showcase at the end of the course that was in mid November. My second gig was, uh, my first proper gig, if you like, was as an open spot on a pro lineup in Sheffield, which I didn't realize I probably had no right to get. Um, but I was really lucky and I got some very nice feedback from David Badil online because I sent him the video of my performance. And uh, I think that helped me get a few gigs I probably wouldn't normally have got. So I did a gig at the Lescar in Sheffield. More of that later because I know someone's asked a question about that. And then I did a few other bits. But then it was coming into December and December's an awful time for comedy. But by January, I'd started my own night locally um, to where I live, where I was going to be booking acts and hosting it. So I had less than 10 gigs under my belt, and suddenly I was running my own night. And, and 18 months later, just before lockdown, I've set myself up as not only a comedian, but a, a sort of a, a full-on promoter of gigs with budgets to pay acts, not just open mic nights. You know, I've set up a, a company called Gag and Bone Man Comedy. I'm running nights. I'm I'm trying to branch out into that side of the business um it's almost like nothing's quite enough which is i think a sign uh, you know a symptom of some of my mental health issues you know i want to i want it all i want to achieve everything i need immediate success i need immediate feedback i need immediate validation so go out and get a gig um go out and get another gig if apply for every gig you can um and 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 when you don't get a gig is it because you don't belong is it because people don't validate you and then suddenly a, an amazing gig lands in your lap and that's fantastic but that's not enough you need another one and, and i know that comedians listening to this will feel that and will recognize that you know so what else can you do well you can set yourself up to be an mc and book the acts yourself and then you've got control but then you get even more anxiety what if nobody turns up what if the acts don't turn up what if the acts are shit what if you book someone who's a racist and you didn't realize what if the audience doesn't like it what if the venue says what the fuck is this this isn't what we agreed um you know and then when you've done that that's not enough book yourself a a venue and start you know promoting paying acts money that you might not get back if you don't sell enough tickets all of that is counterintuitive to someone who has depression and anxiety issues and yet I've done it and I will continue to do it because I fucking love it I absolutely love it um the only reason I would give comedy up now is if is if my wife flat out asked me to because of any kind of impact on our marriage because I owe her that um but she's been incredibly supportive throughout um of the fact that you know that I need to do this I feel the need to do this she doesn't understand why you might drive from West Yorkshire to Liverpool for 10 minutes at an open mic night because you need to you want to get over to that part of the world in front of people or you need to try new material so you'll do a three-hour round trip for 10 minutes without getting anything back any money back anything like that to say words in front of 10 15 people she doesn't get that because why would she because actually it's fucking stupid so she's right not to get it but other in the industry know that that's how it works so 
I do love comedy, um, and I'm going to stick with it. And and I actually do think it on the on the main, in the main, it's helped my mental health. Um, and that's why I started this podcast because I, I, I felt like I'm probably not the only person. I know I'm not the only one who's got a fucked up brain <laughs> in comedy because I'm, you know, I share cars with them often enough and share lineups with them often enough to know that most comedians have an issue of some sort, some experience of, you know, whether it's PTSD bipolar, borderline personality disorder, anxiety, depression, stress. Most comedians live with those issues. Whether we have them more prevalently than people from other walks of life, I don't know, but we certainly are open to them, talk about them more. And I, everyone I've spoken to, um, it, it seems to be that comedy tends to help them more than it harms them. And perhaps the mental health issues help the comedy in return more than it harms it certainly means that i'm open um i'm happy to talk about stuff on stage that i probably wouldn't talk about elsewhere because all right i'm leaving myself open to it but the payoff if it lands wow you know can be big so yeah that's kind of my story i suppose i know that's 20 odd minutes of me waffling on about comedy and mental health but i hope it was coherent and i hope it made some sense um, and what I'm going to do now is just um, just pause the recording for a minute, gather my thoughts, and then gather up the questions that people have sent me via various formats and see how we get on. So thanks for listening. I'll be back shortly. Okay, so uh, this is the second part of uh, the podcast this week, and this is the Q&A section. So uh, what I did was, because I uh, was aware that I was going to be talking to myself a lot, I asked some uh, some friends from the comedy industry, some friends who aren't from the comedy industry, and generally some of my followers on social media for some questions um, to ask uh, me and I would answer them, and I foolishly said I would answer anything, so some of them are quite disgusting. Uh, but we'll start with Meryl O'Rourke, um, came in via Twitter, and you can follow Meryl on Twitter um, if you like, uh, at Meryl O'Rourke, all one word. Um, and Meryl is uh, an excellent stand-up comedian, um, and also an excellent comedy writer. She writes with uh, Frankie Boyle, and has been... Uh, part of his BAFTA nominated team um, for comedy writing so um, she's certainly someone who I would recommend seeing her stand-up show Uh, she has a stand-up show uh, Vanilla um, which is going to be online on the 14th of August well worth a watch I've seen it a few times fantastic anyway um, Meryl has also been my tutor recently on a comedy writing course that I've been doing during lockdown um, to sort of hone my comedy writing skills Uh, I figured it's best to learn from someone who is a master of their craft and she really is Um, so when I ask this question you will note a slight matronly tone 
um, almost, or certainly a teacherly tone um, in her question, which is, why do you ask other people to suggest things when, when you exercise your brain, you're brilliant? Um, thanks for that, Meryl. Uh, it's a good question. Um, also, thank you for, for the um, massively backhanded compliment, which left me with a sore jaw. Uh, but I do think I'm brilliant uh, when I actually stop and think, uh, you know, no, I don't. I don't think I'm brilliant. That's part of the problem. Um why do I ask people for stuff? Well, in this case, it was actually because I thought it would help the format of the podcast episode. I thought it would be much more interesting to answer questions from people rather than just guess what people might want to hear. But generally speaking, I do sometimes say to people, I need to do some writing. What should I write about? Or Meryl has sent me some homework. What should I write about? And that's because the prospect of a blank page sometimes is something that I find quite daunting um, as a writer. And um, actually... um, particularly when it comes to things like trying to broaden the horizons of my comedy style and not not paint myself into a corner um I sometimes find it quite daunting to know where to start because the world's a big place and there's a whole load of stuff you can write about Meryl and I have had discussions actually about the fact that um I'm very self-conscious of my style as a comedian I don't want to only be known for being someone who tells knob gags and talks about his sex life even though I think I'm pretty good at that and and you know uh, people who've seen my stand-up seem to enjoy it I don't want to just be a guy who gets on stage and talks about sex I want to be more than that I want to be more varied and diverse than that and also you know there are lots of comedians out there who look a bit like me big bald beardy guys particularly in the north and it might be hard to pick us out of a lineup if we're all doing similar kinds of stuff um so I want to try and find a way of differentiating um but that means that I almost leave myself with something too broad to talk about. So that's why, Meryl, um, on this occasion, because it's a really valid thing to do, um, but generally speaking, I think because I I lack the courage of my own abilities to write something good. And actually, um, thanks to you over the last eight weeks during the comedy writing course, I think I've gained some courage to do that. Um, And I'm looking forward to uh, the world hearing some of the material that you have helped me generate by making me... um, you know have that courage to do it so genuine thanks very fond of you um and the work you've been doing and i know that you're only um nice to me in return because i've paid to do the course um but uh but i'm really grateful so thank you that was meryl o'rourke um do look her up she's fantastic and then also from twitter mr hyde at hydor 18 um which is h-y-d-o-r-1-8 um has asked the question why do you think so many people who spend so much time making others laugh and be happy struggle to make themselves happy well this is probably something that goes to the very crux of why i set this podcast up um the tears of a clown trope and cliche exists for a reason and actually a lot of a lot of comedians throughout history have struggled with their own happiness but actually sometimes it's because what makes us happy is the acceptance of others and the making other people laugh and if we're having a shit day if we can make you laugh in spite of that and make you happy in spite of that and maybe make you look at your own life and realise it isn't so bad in spite of that, then that just makes that day a little bit less shit. Um, but it's a fine act, fine balance, I suppose, and some people don't get it right, some people struggle. I'm certainly not a comedian that would like to go out on stage and make myself feel better by making other people feel worse um, because I think that's a real hollow 
happiness hollow victory um and, and and loneliness and madness exists down that path um so i think that if i could go out on stage you know and even if it is talking about you know middle age married life with sex life with you know two kids in the house and all that um then if that makes people laugh if i talk about getting cramp in my hamstring during sex and i see people in the front row nudging their their, their partner and saying that happens to you then that, that gives me a bit of a buzz um so that's why we do it i think just to get that little bit of a little bit of a release um and that bit of a buzz so thanks for that and uh, moving on to the next question hello graham terry here what i'd like to know is what has surprised you the most about yourself dealing with the fast-paced life of comedy and also dealing with things that have been difficult at times maybe when a gig hasn't gone well how do you help and manage your own mental health when that happens so that's a question from kerry robinson who is someone i started comedy with and i now work with daily um and it's a good question. Um, so, uh, what surprised me most about my uh, about myself during comedy, um, or, or about comedy generally, I suppose, what surprised me most about myself is is how lacking in nerves I am generally when I'm performing. Um, I, I felt like perhaps I'd be more nervous, but it's it, during the build-up I sometimes get a bit anxious. But as soon as I'm on stage, I'm always always feel fine. Um, how in terms of gigs that haven't gone well um, there have been only a few uh, that have maybe not not sort of landed the way I wanted to land but generally um, the fast paced sort of you know the surprising elements of the fast paced parts of comedy and how to deal with it and think when things don't go well is talking to other people who've had similar experiences or who get it so the support network that we've talked about in other episodes um is is so important you know obviously i work with kerry daily so we speak with it speak about it all the time probably to the annoyance of our colleagues who don't don't work in the comedy industry um but also then have you know other acts who i car share with regularly when we're traveling to and from gigs and and you know facebook messenger groups and whatsapp groups and stuff like that just to say oh shit this has happened what do you do or what have you found or whatever and generally we're able to pick each other up and dust each other off when that happens and it's really important i think if i didn't have that support network it would be a massively different thing for me and probably would be something i wouldn't enjoy doing anywhere near as much so um good question kerry thank you this next question comes from a previous guest on uh the pod uh james stewart um and his question is coming right up hi graham james stewart here um, I'm sure we've had this conversation before, but immediately, how do you decide where to draw the line? How do you decide what's on or off limits? And um, I suppose a link question is, uh, are there any subjects you consider to be to be off limits uh, that you definitely wouldn't joke about? Sorry, it's a bit of a hat question, but uh, it always occurs to me watching you, you know, when I think, oh, I couldn't say that. Uh, how you make those little micro decisions when you're writing your set. Okay, bye for now. See you soon. So thanks for that, Gem. A um, couple of really cracking questions there. Um, how do I decide what to joke about, what not to joke about? Or, I mean, I, I suppose it's easy to answer the second question first. I don't think anything's off limits. I genuinely don't. I think it is entirely possible 
to talk in a humorous way about pretty much everything. Um, I There are things I haven't talked about because maybe I haven't found that way, but I have um, watched, um, said, listened to, laughed at some pretty shocking areas of comedy. That might be... Um, you know, um, things like some of the areas that what you might call the edge lords talk about. Um, you know, our previous guest, Johnny Brook, does material about um, the, the McCanns, um, Madeleine McCann, specifically aimed uh, critically at, at, at Kate and Jerry McCann. I've talked about Shannon Matthews's fake disappearance. I've talked in the past on stage about um, celebrity sexual assault scandals. So, you know, Weinstein, Epstein, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, those kind of things. Um, I have laughed at jokes about sexual assault, disability, race. The key thing about all of those um, is is context intent and who the butt of the joke is really i've laughed about jokes regarding um, islamic terrorism uh, the the notion of muslims grooming children and yet if you look at my social media feeds i am someone who is um you know fighting regularly against islamophobia for example um particularly in my local area um because those jokes were funny and the butt of the joke wasn't the Muslim community. Um, so I think that, that there's nothing that I would say is off limits. I think that I have a few jokes that I have had to acknowledge um, are borderline too edgy. And sometimes I will say them and sometimes on the night I will lead up to them and then I'll bottle it. I had a very brief routine um, in my set uh, where I talk about um, putting a, a show on for my wife whereby I've just got out of the shower and start spinning my penis like a helicopter. And I, I liken the success of that show to um, a, a, a tragic helicopter crash that that initially was the Leicester Football Club um, helicopter crash, and then later um, I may have, have looked at the Kobe Bryant story. Um, now, they they the butt of the joke there was in neither case, in my opinion, the victims of the, 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 the crash. Um, it was me suggesting that my penis was unspectacular, but the context of the joke was edgy, and some people may have said too soon, or some people may have said too shocking, or what have you. So it's a tricky one. But no, short answer, nothing's off limits. Context is everything. Feeling like you're saying something different sometimes is really important. Um, and I don't think anything should be off limits, because I genuinely think, you know, without being grandiose, and certainly it doesn't necessarily apply to some of the stuff that I say, but I think that that throughout history the role of the, the comedian is to sometimes hold a mirror up to society and you know the sort of the court jester making the kin, king look a bit daft if he's being a prick um, and you know these days in the society we've got you do sometimes need to hold a mirror up to society so um, I try not to be hack sometimes it's easier than others sometimes it's it feels like it's uh, that week where everyone's going to do a joke about 
Jeffrey Epstein or whatever. Um, but I, I try not to be hack and I try not to be cruel. And they're really the two things. Is it funny? Is it cruel? If the answer to the first is yes and the second is no, it's fine. If the answer to, to the second one is ever yes, don't do it. And if the answer to the first one is ever no, don't do it. Um, so they're, they're my rules there, I think. But great questions, Jem. Thanks. Next question is from Betty B., um, who uh, is the lady I talked about earlier. I did her birthday party online, um, and she's the wife of my old mate Dave Bedford from uni. Um, so um, fantastic. And hers is a, a simple question, really. Who's your favourite comic, and who has made you belly laugh? Well, anyone who knows me knows my ultimate hero is Billy Connolly, um, and he has been since I was a child, and I've been lucky enough to meet him a couple of times. And people who say you, know, you should never meet your heroes need to upgrade their heroes because he was lovely both times met him um and uh genuinely wish he was my dad he's an amazing guy um who's made me belly laugh lots of people make me belly laugh i've got a, i feel like i've got quite a broad taste comedically um i wouldn't say i favor one type of comedian over the other but i would say that my my favorite comic from the circuit who i would recommend people go and see if they haven't um in terms of pure laughter um, in terms of the person who I find I most most relate to, um, I would say Alan Cochran. Um, that's Alan A U sorry A L U N Cochran. Um, he's he's a really funny guy. Um, I've seen paid to see him live several times, and I've had the pleasure of gigging with him once as well. And he was thoroughly lovely when I met him. Um, but just an in, incredibly funny guy. Um, and and whatever mood I'm in, if I go and watch Alan live. Um, or, or look up some of his material online, it, it never ceases to deliver. Um, there are dozens, hundreds of great comics out on the circuit, but in terms of people who are touring at the moment, I would say Alan um, is, you know, for someone on the circuit now, that if he's coming anywhere within a 100-mile radius, I want to go and see him. Um, and, uh, yeah, really good comic. So thanks for the question, Betty. So a few questions that have come in via Facebook now. Uh, the first one from Pixels Green. Uh, Pixels is the comedian I mentioned that I had seen on Twitter saying that she had done her first ever comedy gig um, and uh, pointed me in the direction of the course that I did. So it's her fault, really. And she says, where do you get your crazy ideas from? Which anyone who's ever listened to the Richard Herring Leicester Square Theatre podcast, also known as Rahula Stepan, that's what all the cool kids call it, um, that is a direct rip-off from one of his emergency questions, or an homage, shall we say. Um, and the short answer, Pixels, is, as Meryl O'Rourke will tell you, I ask other people for them, um, and I just do what they tell me. Um, Peter Fox, who um, is the reviewer for the Knots Comedy Review, and um, much to my annoyance, I have yet to play in front of him, and so um, haven't had the opportunity to uh, either be beasted by him or have nice things said about my comedy from him. Do you find writing material to be cathartic? Depends, Peter. It's a good question. It depends on what I'm writing about. I've, when I've tried to write about stuff that perhaps is more personal to me and more emotional to me, I sometimes find it 
difficult to overcome the personal aspects and find the funny. And this is something else that I've been speaking to Marilyn O'Rourke about. So I, I've tried to talk a bit about my my dear departed mum on stage um, and, and the years of abuse she suffered, suffered at the hands of my biological father and the, the sort of nature of why we left Scotland when I was six weeks old and all of that. And I, I find it sometimes too difficult um, to find the funny in that. Um, certainly as a, as a, a stand-up material anyway i find it sometimes difficult to cut through the the emotion that i feel get the catharsis out of the way and find the funny but if i'm talking about other stuff then it can be really a, a positive experience to go from from a blank page and then suddenly come up with two or three sides of of uh, a4 of of ideas or material or, or or prose that you know you're going to say to, to people and hopefully get a good reaction can give you a bit of a buzz in itself um it's something that most comedians struggle with i think um, to have a good writing discipline and to get good writing habits and sometimes that blank page can be daunting but once i get started i, I feel like yeah i can generate good stuff there i tend to write straight onto a laptop um I, I need to say it out loud more often i know that as a technique but yeah i enjoy it uh, once i get going and um i just need to make sure that i don't disappear up my own ass and become too wordy and loquacious which i'm doing right now but great question peter thank you uh, Dave Bedford, who I mentioned earlier, whose wife Betty B asked a question. Um, after you released your own sex tape to the media, is it a point of personal pride that no one has watched it on Pornhub after several years? Um, well, I don't really know what to say to that, Dave, because I know that you have frequently. Um, and uh, to be honest, I think Betty B, your wife, owes me a debt of gratitude for getting you in the mood several times. I know that you, you know, you like to to watch me pull the head off it and then uh, then have at your lady wife. So um, that was a, a weird question to ask when you think it might bounce back at you. But if, if you get your rocks off watching a fat man like me having a little tug at himself, then that's up to you, mate. Um, Wayne Bamforth, uh, how good is it playing the West Lescar? So Wayne is a regular at the Lescar and he helps out there. Uh, Lescar is a, a gig in Sheffield, uh, the last laugh at the Lescar. And that was the gig I mentioned earlier, which was my second ever gig. And Wayne was really nice to me that night and since then. Um, and that just to tell you about that night, it was the, the one night I've, I've played there. Um, and it was fantastic. So... I should probably never have got the gig. I turn up. Uh, Tom Rigglesworth was the MC for the night. He's fantastic. Um, the, the the brilliant Troy Hawk um, was was performing uh, opening that night, and then uh, Rich Wilson was closing, um, and I was on in the middle doing my my ten minutes of stand up at my second ever gig. Uh, in a proper comedy venue and I shouldn't have I just shouldn't have been there and it was amazing it was I felt like shit that day what I, I never really told Wayne was I actually felt rough as fuck that day and I, I went on stage full of um, a heady mix of paracetamol um, um, the um, what's it Imodium because I thought I was going to shit myself. I genuinely had a really bad stomach. So paracetamol, Imodian, and uh, the good old uh, Pro Plus for caffeine, because I felt like so so poorly that I thought I was going to nod off as well. Um, so my second ever gig, I'm drugged up to the eyeballs and over-the-counter medications, and everyone was lovely, including Wayne. Um, and um, 
I feel like I delivered a good set that night. Rich Wilson was particularly nice to me afterwards um, and has remained so on social media since when we've interacted. Um, and it was that was probably the night when I, I really first thought, I can do this, I can enjoy this. Um, and I'm looking forward to getting back there at some point soon. So um, nice, nice to hear from you, Wayne. I hope you're well. Um, now, let's have a look. What else have we got? Oh, yeah, Matt, Matt Smith. Oh, Matt Smith has asked if his question can be left anonymous so um this question comes from um anonymous i hope that's all right matt um what's the best and worst wank you've ever had my best was in biology class in year eight my worst was the first time i did it i was in my bedroom and unbeknownst to me i got a nosebleed the first droplet of blood landed on my penis and i thought i'd broken my new toy um um anonymous um Mate, that's um I don't know what to say to that. I don't really keep a track of like a scorecard of, of successful wanks. I do have a good wanking story though. Um so I um once was at Leeds Railway Station, um, at the end of a working day, would have been about half past five in the evening and needed a piss. So I went to the toilets on the platform, um and I stood at the urinal and um, I suddenly realised that to the left of me something's not quite right. And I look, just glance down and realise that the guy that stood to my left was not actually having a piss. He was, he was um, pleasuring himself. Um, and uh, it was, I've never had that happen before. And this was broad daylight, you know, five five thirty. There were other people in the toilets as well. It wasn't just me and him. Uh, and um, and, and I don't know why, but I, I couldn't stop glancing across thinking, Jesus, that guy's actually having a wink. Um, and then I made the mistake of um, my eyes. I looked up and made eye contact. And that's the worst thing I could have done. Now, the reason that was the worst thing I could have done was because he looked back at me with a look of, of not lust, but fear and panic. And he gave me a look that sort of said, help me um and and i didn't know what to do so i um i finished my my business uh zipped up and scurried off never knowing whether that guy was mentally ill whether he was just a pervert or whether his look of help me was uh some sort of weird come on um but that is probably the uh the worst wank i've ever experienced um and it wasn't my own um Okay, so um, we have a couple of questions that have come in. Uh, one, first one is via WhatsApp, and then uh, two more from Facebook. So uh, the one from WhatsApp is by my uh, very dearest and oldest friend, Mr. Care Rice. Um, Care asks, uh, what do you see being the biggest challenge in uh, comedy when you get back on the circuit? Do you feel the need to address the issues we've all had, and how will you do that? Um, so... Uh, I've got two hats in, on here, I suppose. As an act on someone else's bill, I don't think it's going to do anyone any favours if I get on and go, oh, it wasn't locked down hard. What did you do? Did you run out of pasta? Did you stock up on loo roll? Did you want to murder the wife or any of that sort of stuff? Because it's just going to be the same thing that everyone's been saying for months and other people will be saying again. Um, so as an act, I probably won't mention it. However, I have written new material during lockdown that I'm looking forward to doing that probably wouldn't have got written uh, if it wasn't for lockdown. For example, um, 
the I've done some written some material about trying yoga because my wife has become a bit of a yoga obsessive during lockdown. Um, now, if I'm talking about that, it doesn't have to have any reference to coronavirus or COVID or lockdown in it uh, because the material stands or falls on its own merits, not anything to do with lockdown. So that's going to be... Um, good to try and i'm looking forward to that um as a as an mc or a compare if i'm hosting a night in the early days back i think it's going to be impossible to avoid um but so for example i'll be laying down the the rules of social distancing at the gig because all the gigs are going to have their own kind of unique rules about one-way systems and hand sanitizing and all of that stuff um so i'll have to talk about it there but I won't want to linger on it because of what I've just said. I mean, the chances are if I'm emceeing a night with half a dozen acts, two or three of those acts are possibly going to have stuff about lockdown. And and I don't want to get it to, you know, I wouldn't want it to be repetitive or start to get mundane. Um, so I don't think so, really. Um, you know, a bit of crowd work, if you're an MC, you might talk to them about what, they'd, what they've been up to, but... You know, like I say, it can become quite sort of hack and hackneyed and boring and, you know, who wants to hear all about lockdown when that's all we've been hearing about 24-7 for four months, feels like 40 years. So thanks for the question, Care. Uh, I probably won't talk about it very much if I can help it. Um, But then anyone who comes to my first show after lockdown will probably then report back that I've lied and I've just done nothing but talk about it so uh, we'll see Um, and then I have uh, two questions that have come in from Peter Fox um, who who asks Peter Fox the the Knott's Comedy Review uh, critic um, who asked a question earlier about writing Um, he asks two questions that are sort of one follows on from the other so he says I've seen some really good sets where the acts talk about mental health and I've also seen some where it just feels like they're getting things off their chests in front of people. How do you feel about hearing things like this discussed on stage? Um, I've, I've talked very briefly about my own mental health issues on stage, but I'm very much a light touch. Uh, I, I, I talk about the side effects of antidepressants and, and you know, it ends in a knob gag, Peter. So um, it's very light-hearted. Um, and I and I will say that any time I I mention it on stage, I notice a palpable change of energy in the room because it's such an issue for people that either people in the room I think are thinking, oh God, no, he's going to talk about mental health, or people are thinking, oh, he's going to talk about mental health. What's he going to say? Um, and you know. There's a the room just grows a little bit colder because they they the mood changes because they're worried that you might let them down when you talk about it either by sucking the joy out of the room or by um, saying something crass and insensitive about mental health. That's my take on it, and I'm like that when I hear it. So if I'm hosting a night or if I'm at a night and people bring up the subjects of mental health, it piques my interest professionally because I want to see how they're going to navigate through it but also is one of those things one of those areas where suddenly I think you've got to be good or you've got to have the right deafness of touch the lightness of touch I don't ever think it's right 
to have that second category you've just talked about of people just wanting to get things off your chest. If you just want to get on stage to vent about anything, not just mental health, then go somewhere else and do it. If it's not material, if it's not structured, if you've not worked at it, if you've not put the effort in that the audience deserves to craft something, don't fucking do it, is my my belief. And and I and I've fallen foul of that a couple of times where sometimes as an MC it's tempting to riff on something or ad lib on something that has already been touched on. And if you don't get that right and you, at best you've got a fifty fifty chance, you can ruin the next five or ten minutes and make it harder for the acts that are going to come on stage next. I once saw a, a compare introduce an actor who'd travelled all the way from um, the east coast of Lancashire into West Yorkshire and the introduction um, amounted to an appeal to buy tickets for a charity gig because someone's dad was dying and that was the introduction and then it was and now your next act is and it and it was an afterthought it hadn't been thought out absolutely right if you want to plug tickets for a charity gig that's coming up do it but the thought hadn't gone into how to do it and suddenly and it was a real heartfelt issue but suddenly this this next act who traveled on a friday night he was doing a double and this was his first of two gigs had to go on stage with my dad's dying as the last thing the audience had heard from the compare and and that's that's awful um so i think you've got to be really careful about it in terms of mental health the next question that peter asks is are there any mental health topics you think shouldn't be spoken about on stage no um very much like the answer i gave to jem about topics in general no there are no topics i think are off limits but i do think you need to know what you're talking about to know who you're talking to as much as you can and to have the skill and the intelligence to set it up right. So if you're going to talk about suicide or PTSD issues, things like that, then you need to build up to it in the right way. You you need to have a trigger warning because it can be triggering. You need to You need to be conscious that what you're saying might be misconstrued, you need to be conscious you might lose the room um, and you need to be sure that it's worth the material is worth it and the subject matter is worth it. Um, and we've talked to people on this podcast who've, who've had shows about various issues. Jim Bays had a show in Edinburgh about his, his attempted suicide um, you know, and, and he says himself that it divided the room sometimes. Um, Matthew Reid talked about his experience in his show Stalked um, and, and, you know, again, that can be quite triggering for people. I I have seen um, shows where sexual assault is discussed from the viewpoint of the victim, um, and that has potentially triggered me a little bit on the night to at least, um, you know, maybe not pay attention to the next five minutes of the show in as much detail because I'm digesting this this heavy sort of meal of material um that that can affect then the energy in the room as i mentioned earlier so nothing's off limits but do it in the right way do it for the right reasons and again governing rule is it cruel is it funny don't be cruel be funny 
Um, and actually then I think it can be useful. Uh, and, and on this matter, the final thing I'll say is I've actually had the bit that I do talk about, about antidepressants and the side effects, is a true it's a truism. It's a thing that comes from from my own experience. The punchline isn't true, but the punchline is a nice way of wrapping it all up. But I did a gig um, over in Preston. I did a gig with um, Jordan Descham, Doug Carter, uh, Matty Shaw. Um, and at that gig, um, I think Mike Carter was there as well. And, and I opened up and I did my material about mental health. And as I left the gig, I was uh, I thought I was being accosted by three three middle-aged women. Um, who I thought were making a beeline for me. And actually it turned out that, that two of them were mental health uh, carers, uh, nurses on, on their night out, on a Friday night out. And they thanked me for talking about it. They said it made us laugh. It's important that blokes talk about these kinds of issues and no one ever really does. So thank you for doing that. So I think you can have validation in that way as well. And if you do it in the right way, it, can, it, it certainly can be harmless. And sometimes it can do, do some good. So really good questions. Thanks, guys. So uh, I think that might be almost all the questions. We have one more which I want to share with you um, from Liz uh, Elizabeth Vanterblack, who is a previous guest on the pod. So let's see if we can get you to hear this one. Dong shows. I don't know that they're that good for anyone's mental health. My question is, how do people survive them? But also, are they a necessary evil? Are they a good thing? I don't really know. Do you know what? I've never done one. Interested to see what you think. Okay, so that is a good question. Gong shows. I've only ever done three. Um, and I'm not sure I'm going to do any more. Um, the first gong show I ever did was um in again in sheffield um funhouse comedy run by spiky mike bottomley and that's a really nice gong show it's a very friendly one um for those of you who don't know in the comedy industry gong shows are generally the the comedians who are assembled have to try and last five minutes um on stage delivering their best material and um there are normally people within the audience appointed to um to judge throughout those five minutes either as as in spiky mike's case at regular intervals so when, when spiky mike runs it he will ask members of the audience to put up cards at allotted times and if you get more red cards than green cards you're off um at other gong shows it's at any point um so you could literally last a few seconds um which is uh, you know can be heartbreaking so uh, i did spiky mike's first um and i finished second uh, runner up to nick ahad uh, knowing me knowing you ahad as i quite to, like to say but nick ahad is a great comedian um from my neck of the woods and um it was a close run thing on the night i think and and uh, but it was a worthy winner um and actually what i'm had made the mistake there was i didn't realize that 
if you did your best five minutes and you beat the gong, which is, means that no one's voted you off, or you haven't been voted off, you then have to do another minute. So I didn't really have another minute prepared, and I went on and waffled, and I think that was possibly what made the difference on the night. Um, and then did beat the frog at the frog and bucket in Manchester, um, and I did all right. Um, you know, I be- again, I beat the gong. I got through the five minutes, um, and there you just have a, a vote off um, there and then. Um, and um, I think that night was won by uh, Jenny, Jenny Marmalade to Jenny Cunningham um, with her musical act, and she was fantastic. Um, and then I did King Gong at the Comedy Store in Manchester, and about two minutes in, uh, first card went up, and for some reason that night, and I think it was because I was at the comedy store, and because I'd made the mistake of when I went for a piss before the show, looking at all of the photos on the wall and seeing how many of my heroes had trodden the same stage I was about to tread. Um, I made the mistake when the card went up, and and the the crowd can be quite volatile, quite gladiatorial. I made the mistake of thinking, shit, I need to get my material out because I need to I need to fight back, I need to claw this back. And I went into panic mode, and so my, I got faster and I got more aggressive with my material delivery, and that just meant the cards came quicker, and I got gonged off. And I beat myself up a bit for that because I realised that I'd made the mistake um, of of thinking I had to win the audience over rather than just join in with them, which was something that Paul Dennis spoke about last week. Um, so I think that they're not necessarily for everyone. Are they a necessary evil? They certainly get bums on seats, and they get crowd audiences involved. But whether they do it in the right way or not, I don't know. Generally, at a comedy night, you want um, the audience to be on your side as a comedian and support all the comedians. And then at a gong show, you flip that round and you ask them to be aggressive and brutal and vote them off. And actually, if the people holding the cards don't vote the acts off when the other people in the audience want them to, they can become then victimised and bullied and shouted at. So I'm not sure they're for me. Um, the simple fact of the matter is if you if you don't win a gong show, it isn't going to slow down your comedy career. If you do, it might speed it up by a few weeks. Um, it's a bit like the new act competitions that you see where there's no real definition of a new act. Some some competitions say it's a year. Some, some competitions say it's five years. If you don't win one, who's going to know? But if you win one, it might speed your career up by three or four months. Um, so competitive comedy, not really for me, I don't think. Um, but it's a good question. And I would just say if you're someone who's going to beat yourself up if you don't get success all of the time, comedy is tricky enough as it is without subjecting yourself to that kind of event. And this is from uh, Freddie, um, Freddie Cocker, who runs the event website uh, which I've contributed to before um, and uh, it's a really good mental health um, sort of resource I suppose it's a place where people like me have talked about their issues um, online Um, he has also a a, a brilliant podcast called the just checking in podcast which I'd recommend to anyone and here's Freddie's question hi Graham it's Freddie here from vent I've got a couple questions for you for your pod the first one is what is your worst story about bombing what happened where was it and what did you learn from it? And then second, where, what is the most inappropriate place where you've accidentally been in comedian mode? Cheers. 
Okay, so uh, bombing. Um, it's really tricky because I've, I've been quite lucky in, the, in a proper comedy setting. Um, I don't think I've bombed yet. Um, and by that, I mean a, a comedy night with a comedy crowd. But um, I did have a gig um, where I had been booked to do sort of half an hour or so of comedy um, as part of an end-of-season awards do for a pool club um and i turn up at the venue it was over in man over in blackburn way um i turn up at the venue and there's there's a dj um like a proper old school uh wheels of steel kind of dj uh, with a microphone no lighting no stage area um and uh, no compare no mc and I think, okay, this is going to be painful. Um, immediately, on, I'm just thinking, just take the money and run, get through it. And then five minutes before I was due to go on, the captain of the pool club comes over to me and says, uh, just so you know, just before you go on, um, the uh, our, our closest rivals, uh, the captain of their pool team, dropped dead 10 days ago. And uh, we're going to do a presentation to his widow and his son um and then you'll be on straight after that um and so i had to to go on after um this emotional sort of moment with no warm up no mc no compare and try and make people laugh when actually they just said goodbye to someone who died and I, and all they wanted to do was get the as much beer down the necks and get their end of season awards done um that was was painful. I got about twenty minutes in and realised that I was almost just talking to the table directly in front of me. Um, I suppose in that situation, a I'm glad that I was was earning money. Uh, B uh, the learning was um, that sometimes those gigs you are just there to to line your pockets, really, as as mercenary as that sounds. Um, and see not to beat yourself up because there was pretty much nothing I could have done about that apart from saying no to the gig and if I'd said no to the gig someone else would have gone and got paid 200 quid for that gig and and would have had a similar experience I think I don't think many people um, who would have done that gig for that money on that night would have done much differently to me I don't think so um, that would have been that in terms of the most inappropriate place to be in comedian mode I don't know it's difficult um, you know I do I've done some voluntary work and stuff like that in, in the local community and sometimes it's quite easy to slip into um, comedian mode and actually on a serious note I've kind of stepped back from one of the local groups I was involved with um, because um, they do quite sensitive work um, which can be quite politically divisive and sensitive and having then having me as a comedian on there and some of the material I talk about um, has meant that I've ended up having to step back from that so uh, that's something that is isn't great but I'm given the choice between the two. I think that this makes me happier. So I'm going to keep doing that. So probably not the light-hearted answer to the second one you wanted, but uh, cheers for the question, Freddie. And thanks for listening this week, folks. Uh, I know it's been a bit of a weirder pod this week than normal because I've been on my own. Uh, but uh, thank you for all the questions that everyone sent in. Do listen next week. Um, hoping to have a fantastic guest lined up um, if we can sort out the time to record. Um, this has been episode 12 of Sparks of Madness, and I've been Graham Rayner, and I've been on my own. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a gag and bone man comedy production. <laughs>